Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Boulder Bolding with Keith Ruckhouse and Alec Tsukatus. All right, so our topic today is about how to measure economic growth. Alec, we've previously talked about the shortcomings of measuring it by GDP, which was at one point a pretty good measurement coming out of the Great Depression when almost all economies were struggling to uh, get back up and running. But uh, it continues to be a sort of failed index. For one, uh, it doesn't measure real production since around uh, the 1980s we started or somebody started including bank profits as uh, production. Things like investments and things like that are now considered part of a product. Uh, the bigger problem that we want to talk about, I'm sure that you want to talk about today, is that these no longer measure the sort of ill effects of growth without uh, considering other kinds of consequences to economic activity. I want to read, uh, first off, an article written by Herman Daly uh, that addresses this. So let me now just uh, read that. Well-being should be counted in net terms. That is to say, we should consider not only the accumulative stock of wealth, but also that of ilth, and not only the annual flow of goods, but also that of bads. The fact that we have to stretch English language usage to find words like ilth and bads, with which to name the negative consequences of production that should be subtracted from the positive consequences, is indicative of having ignored the realities for which these words are the necessary names. Bads and ilth consist of things like nuclear waste, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, biodiversity loss, climate change for from excess carbon in the atmosphere, depleted mines, eroded topsoil, dry wells, exhausting and dangerous labor, congestion, etc. We are indebted to Ron John Ruskin for the word ilth and to an anonymous economist, perhaps Kenneth Boulding, for the word bads. In the empty world of the past, these concepts and the names for them were not needed because the economy was so small relative to the containing natural world that our production did not incur any significant opportunity cost of displaced nature. We now live in a full world, full of us and our stuff, and such costs must be counted and netted out against the benefits of growth. Otherwise, we might end up with extra bads outweighing extra goods, and increases in ilth greater than the increases in wealth. What used to be economic growth could become uneconomic growth, that is, growth in production for which marginal costs are greater than marginal benefits, growth that in reality makes us poorer, not richer. No one is against being richer. The question is, does growth any longer really make us richer? Or has it, in fact, started to make us poorer? So, Alec, I want to start off by having you answer that question. What does make us richer or what does make us poor economically? So, it matters how we define wealth, in not just in terms 
wealth as well as physical wealth. So that's the notion of well-being or happiness or thriving. So it's important to make that distinction between physical or material wealth, if you will, in contrast to other kinds of wealth. Right, and that's that's definitely lacking from GDP. Now, GDP is something that especially measures national economic vibrancy. It measures it on national scales. Activity, activity yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. So, uh, to go back a little bit in history, it was uh, put together by uh, Belarusian uh, economist by the name of Simon Kuznets, who became an American citizen, lived in the United States in 1937. And he himself, at the very, very beginning, uh, warned against using uh, that GDP to measure welfare or well-being. If you will, the person that invented it or first suggested it uh, was very conscious of the weaknesses of it uh, right back then. And what did he see as the weakness? Two things, I think. One is that uh, the GDP includes both benefits and costs in its calculation of productive activity. So, for example, uh, you can increase GDP by having more accidents or more illnesses because then you have to have more mechanics and more uh, doctors and nurses in order to fix that which you broke. So both of those end up in uh, in the calculation of GDP. And that, of course, is a mistake. Obviously, people would be better off if they didn't have as many accidents or didn't have as much illness. Right. So they don't make a distinction between income and cost. Right. Now, and we've got to remember also when GDP was uh, brought forth, and that was the first few years of uh, the Great Depression in the United States. And we must remember that when we say about the Great Depression, the Great Depression wasn't just in the United States, it was all over the world, or the capitalist world anyway. Right. It was a universal uh, problem. And the principal issue that was at hand was to increase production again, which would increase income, and which would increase then demand of people and getting the economy going. So it's a circular kind of very, very good, benign circle, if you will. There's no doubt that there was a necessity for measurement. There was a necessity for measurement. And that was in contrast to the economics of that time. That is to say, the vast, vast, vast majority of economists throughout the United States and the world believed that the market system would automatically bring us back to full employment. Okay, so they were preaching that way back in the 1920s also. Yes, uh, yes, that's right. And that the principal advice that the economics profession had, I mean, this is literally true, to uh, the authorities, to government, in the face of the Great Depression was wait. Literally, that was the advice of the economics profession. Because they had uh, a belief that even though 
the economy was not resurrecting itself on its own as yet, he, they thought. Uh, it's just that it was a very, very deep depression, and so it would take more time for the system to respond and bring us back to economic health again. And meanwhile, people's well-being could uh, continue to seriously decline <laughs> while we're That's waiting. Right. Right? And so Keynes's, uh response to that is, uh, was twofold. One is, it might be that the system will get back to health again, but a bit later than usual from past recessions. Or it might be that the system is in such deep depression that the system gets broken and therefore we can't depend on the inherent capacity of the market system to resurrect itself. Either one or the other, Keynes said, is not acceptable and therefore we need to intervene. Okay. Even if we thought that the economy would, would come back on its own. Okay. Why have people suffer for a prolonged period of time if we can do something about it and intervene? Right. And so coming up with a gross, uh, gross, uh, domestic, product, yeah. gross domestic product index was part of the solution, correct, to how we could... Well, it was part of measuring uh, whether or not the policies that Keynes and Roosevelt put into action actually produced the results. Okay, so it, it was part of the solution of how we can jumpstart uh, the economy after a world war and a Great Depression. So, well, after the Great Depression first, because after the war, uh, there wasn't a need to resurrect the economy because the economy was doing superbly well. Okay, but that's a prime example of like... Oh, uh, you know, we can have a great economy. Uh, first, we need a, a nice world war. <laughs> and, then we... yeah. and, and it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, what produces an increase in government expenditure. Either it's a war or a conscience. Um, uh, the net result is the same in terms of the economy reviving. Now, the structure of the economy would be different, obviously, if it's oriented towards war versus oriented towards a general well-being of people. Yes, but it's important to know that the measurement was a necessity, not as a means to get to resurrect the economy, but to be able to measure whether our policies brought about the right results. It's just like a doctor prescribing a drug and then wanting to find out whether the drug uh, had the effect that they were supposed to have. Okay, and so, yeah, it, was, it seemed like a good thing at the time. However, right now, especially with certain political parties, they now the GDP is the master and we're the slaves. It's like we gotta, we got to keep pumping up that GDP always, and, you know, production, 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 that's what we need. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and, and growth, therefore. And that, I think, is pushed quite a bit, not only by government and uh, media, but by also by big business. Because essentially, if there is no such growth, then there is a tendency for profits to go down. Right. 
and so we have this idea that all things will decline if this index does not continually go up. You have, like, uh, the 2009 Sarkozy report on the measurement of economic performance and social progress, authored by Joseph Stiglitz, Amartya Sen, and Jan Paul Fatuzzi, noted the time is ripe for our measurement system to shift emphasis from measuring economic production to measuring people's well-being. there was a correlation between them, a good correlation between GDP increases and an increase in well-being. After that, they diverge. Yes, uh, I've seen the these GDP graphs. can continue to go up, whereas the well-being can either remain the same or uh, go down. Yes, that's part of that report, that Sarkozy yes, report, right. shows, actually right. shows the graph. And um, they, they've got ways of measuring people's well-being. Are you... Yes, there are various indices, and I haven't yet made a list of these variety of indices because it matters what you put in the index in terms of a variable... How are you going to measure well-being? What are the ingredients that make for well-being? Well, income is one of them up to a certain point, or uh, but other things are relevant as well. So there was, for example, uh, the amount of health care, or the amount of uh, illness, the amount of access to uh, higher education, etc., etc. So. There are other ingredients other than income that go into uh, well-being. Right. Let me uh, mention a a Princeton study that was done several years back uh, by Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton, in which they uh, determined the measure of happiness, and that their main measure was your emotional well-being, that money did buy happiness up until a point, to about $75,000, in fact. And then they said, after that, your emotional well-being doesn't change and oftentimes gets worse the more money you make. So that that is one. And their key measurement was your emotional well-being, not, not other things as well. And they, they actually said probably they... Uh, think that probably the main negative factor with the gaining of wealth is how much you start comparing yourself to others. Yes. Which I, th- which I thought was uh, yeah, very, yes. very, very yeah. interesting. But uh, so they kind of put that number right at $75,000, which really is, uh, is, is a uh, pretty middle-class uh, income, depending on where you're, not in San Francisco, but uh, in many parts of the country, you could probably get by on $75,000. That would be the case also with northern Europe and various uh, other countries in the world. Right. Australia, New Zealand, uh, yeah. you know, So, so yeah. I, I found... So, go ahead. But it's important to know, uh, Keith, that there are various such indices depending on which 
variables you choose and what weight you put on each variable. Right, and so there's probably going to be years ahead where this is refined depending on uh, who's working on it. I I actually have uh, did a little study in some of these indexes, and here's another one called the, the Gross National Happiness Index. And this was inspired by the UN General Assembly of the uh, Bhutanese-sponsored resolution calling for happiness and well-being to become a central goal of global social and economic development policies. Yes, and, that's uh, right. And it was uh, actually suggested by the king of Bhutan. Yes, yes. And I, this uh, not by uh, general uh, upheaval in the population. <laughs> right. And uh, actually, I got this off of the, their official website. And here are the nine domains uh, to measure uh, GNH um, that was included. So one of them is psychological well-being. In other words, mental health. So you've got half the country on opiates. That's probably not a good indication that you're... That's right. The use of time, that, that comes up quite often. You have brought that up quite often, you know, that if people have no time to do anything to relax, to to contemplate, you know, they're just working all the time, then that's not a good use. And, uh... Uh, I, as a good Mediterranean, would say, how about long lunches t- together talking about uh, any so- any number of things? Yes, yes, I, I can go for that, <laughs> totally. Uh, <laughs> another one was community vitality. The fourth one is cultural diversity, which is, for some people, could be quite shocking. No, actually, you know, a, a diverse culture makes for... Uh, better well-being. I agree with that totally. Environmental diversity, uh, good governance, some that are pretty standard are living standards, health, and education. And the goal, one of the main goals of uh, this index was, and I'm totally for this, this is what motivates my economic thinking more than anything else, is the elimination of poverty. I mean, how can you say I? It it bugs me when we say, "Oh, we're America's the wealthiest nation in the world," when forty percent of the population is near poverty, in poverty, or near poverty. That's and, not a wealthy and nation. Going in that direction more. Yes. So we we should not be counting that according to how much money is in the country, but how how many poor people do you have? Forty percent is a lot. They were. Uh, they also mention economic growth alone is an insufficient foundation for building a good society, in which right. all citizens have the opportunities and capabilities to live fulfilling lives of dignity, creativity, and happiness. So, right. yeah. So that's that's another one. There's uh, another one called the genuine progress indicator, and a Marilyn Waring was a major contributor of that. And she came up with the term, which is close to our term that I mentioned uh, from Herman Daly of ILTH, <laughs> measuring ILTH as well as wealth. And she came up with uh, the term uneconomic growth. And that has to be considered. So, and that growth in money supply did not transfer to societal well-being. One of the, another one of the proponents of... Uh, 
this this uh, index, which is again called the Genuine Progress Indicator, a Paul uh, Lons. Uh, this is his list. Well, he brings up that any index has to bring up the ilth, the the cost of economic activity that include the following potential harmful effects. And so he lists these, which is the cost of resource depletion, the cost of crime, cost of ozone depletion, the cost of family breakdown, the cost of air, water, and noise pollution, the loss of farmland, and the loss of wetlands. So these are, um, that, that index in particular puts a lot of focus on the ilth factor. It's, it's like... And in particular, the, the, the environmental, although yes. family and crime. Yeah, what was the first, no, the first one? Uh, the cost of resource depletion. And you have yeah. talked a lot. We're going to talk about that more when we talk about, the, you know, rentierism and and uh, land ownership and things of that nature. Yeah, because that's correlated with that my well-being also has to do with my uh, sense of uh, how much I allow my grandchildren to have a good life, that... My well-being depends not only on my having a good life, but other people having a good life. Yes. Including my grandchildren. Yes. That, that I think, is a very, very important piece. Right. So, you know, the notion of ilth, Herman Daly borrows from John Ruskin, it's a very interesting uh, story. The John Ruskin was... Um, the acknowledged art critic of the 19th century mm. in, in Europe. And uh, he believed that uh, people have a natural capacity to appreciate beauty. And uh, he was puzzled then by the fact that so many people lived ugly lives. Mm. Which is... So how come... You know, there is this instinct for beauty, and yet it's not expressed in everybody's daily life. And that's when he came up with the idea that this natural capacity is undermined by the economic system. Which would also explain why when you drive through poor neighborhoods, they're not attractive, and why people in poor neighborhoods don't seem to want nice lawns or neat places or um, those kind or of... Or even sometimes destroying their, their own uh, yeah. buildings and their own exactly. environment. Exactly. So, so, so this, I think, is very important to suggest this uh, societal or structural element in the... Co- to the contribution of well-being. That is not only an individual uh, task. You, you see, that, that's where economics and politics and society comes in, in, in that, you know, you can't guarantee by government people's well-being. What you can do is guarantee the conditions that are good for somebody 
there is then a personal responsibility to use those conditions uh, in order to thrive. Which yeah. would maybe dovetail into the need for a universal basic income. Yes, that's so. right. And a universal basic income, not as uh, a net to fall to keep people from falling into dire poverty, but and I like this uh, change in vocabulary that some people have suggested. Instead of using uh, safety net. A safety net to use a base from which people can then jump into their own contribution for the well-being and the well-being of society. Yeah, I like that term. Yeah, it's uh, you, everyone needs a, a a base, and you know, a platform. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. that's right. And and the, yeah, I like it very much over uh, the net. Yes, and that's the problem with people in poverty is they have no base. They have. Uh, it, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, my family's not rich in any sense of the word, but my kids have had the base of my wife and I making sure they're educated, making sure they're clothed, that's guiding, bad, uh, making sure that they have a concern for other people. You know, all of yes. that. Yes. Well, we also put in their brains that college would need to you know is part of the plan uh we help them through that we help them negotiate that that's something that um poor people just simply don't have a base like that so to say well pick yourself up by your bootstraps it's like well yeah well can i pretty silly do you have some bootstraps for me (laughs) (laughs) and the other thing of course is that um, that uh, what can be a very undermining of uh, uh, well-being is a great deal of uh, of wealth as as a great deal of power that is unrestricted because then you get in the direction of arrogance you get uh, you go in the direction of greed right. you go in the direction of uh, cruelty etc so well, they... I think that this is this is something that we that I haven't heard enough about, but I find that it's very useful to say, hey, listen, you know, we need the redistribution of income and wealth, and it's not only good for poor people; it's very good for rich people because you won't be tempted right. to be arrogant, yes, and cruel as much as you did before. So it's good for you. Right. I I believe uh, there's another index that comes uh, from uh, Austria, uh, a group out of Austria. And uh, one of their suggestions is that, uh, you, you know, you have a corporate kind of index of costs and benefit for society. So the more that your product uh, shows benefit to society, not just in you know, money, but also uh, its lack of uh, waste, um, lack of exploitation, et cetera, et cetera, then you get more tax breaks. If your company shows a detriment to society, then you're taxed more. And uh, so there's another way to look at that. This is one technique. The other one that I heard of is that uh, government can have a contribution to that and give contracts to companies, for example, that uh, 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 
pollute much less or that they have a ratio of income of less than uh, 50 to 1, do I know? But that's where the contracts go. Right, right. Otherwise, you don't get a contract from the government. So that's another way of getting to this goal. But first, we have to have the goals and be pretty specific about them. Yes, and so this is where we go back to uh, the problem with GDP, that it's more now a master than a servant for a society. It's like we've all got to bow to GDP and and uh, make sure that it just keeps going up and up. Um, well, there is for sure manipulation of the stock market to make it continually look like uh, it's going up. And then there's also... What Michael Hudson has, uh, in many cases, brought up through his books, his articles, and podcasts is is uh, the whole problem of beginning in the 1980s is we started including, quote, financial products as a part of the production of society. He says, no, the, those are... Uh, you know, those are leeches on, on production. They're not part right. of production. They're the cost. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Yes. yes. No, they're parasites on production. But, they yeah. they but, suck, yeah. suck production out. Yes. You know, uh, doing stock buybacks and the whole, the whole thing of, uh, you know, that the priority should always be the stockholders, not, not, bene- not the workers of a corporation. Yes. So... That's the other criterion is not only uh, the ratio of the highest income to the lowest income, but what uh, uh, what are the policies of uh, the company vis-a-vis people in uh, the company. So, for example, you know, we could uh, governments, local governments, uh, uh, state governments, federal governments, etc., could give money to or contracts to uh, companies that have this uh, in their policies and that they follow those policies that benefit uh, workers and employees. Yes, now we're far away from that. What I plan to do at the end of this is we're going to have some discussion about what it would take spiritually, psychologically to turn around the thinking in America. Uh, because for the most part, Americans are pretty convinced we have to keep consuming, we have to keep growing. We uh, this is the only way we keep our uh, economy alive, and we keep burying all the costs. We put them on foreign governments, we put them on the poor, we put them on minorities. We uh, the environment. Yeah, we put them on the environment. And we bury it all. We keep it. We just keep it out of out of sight. And so, yes. Uh, yes. But uh, more and more, it can't be hidden. The consequences are coming upon us pretty fast and furious. As this, yeah. And the the thing that I think is again important is to show that these so-called new ideas or resurrected ideas have very profound American uh, roots. That that might help people to accept them more. In other words, we're not just turning to, oh, well, Scandinavian countries don't 
no, no, no. I thought we were number one. And so uh, there are very good ideas that come from America, like Tom Paine, who was one of the first people that suggested a universal basic income. Right. And Henry and George. I, to, to bring that out, that it is a profoundly American idea. The one that I'm now favoring enormously is something that I just discovered very recently, and that's the a speech that FDR gave, I think, in 1941, or 40 or 41, about the four freedoms. Ah. And those are? And those are uh, freedom of uh, expression and right. freedom to associate. Then the other one is freedom of worship, including being an atheist and uh, or an agnostic. Right. Uh, or a Buddhist or a Muslim or what have you. Right. And then he says something that for me is just wonderful. It goes from freedom to to freedom from. Freedom from want. Right. That has to do with all the stuff that you talked about with respect to poverty. You know, freedom from want of food, clean water, clean air, education, transportation, etc., right. etc. Et so that's a really big uh, basket. And the other one is freedom from aggression. You right. know, so the police force, uh, individuals, uh, corporation trashing your neighborhood, uh, uh, military force, etc. Right. So I think it covers an enormous number of the kinds of things that we, we both are very, very interested in and other uh, people are very interested in. And one last thing that really blew my mind, I just had to read it two or three times before I believed it, and that is that he said, FDR said, and these uh, values we stand for, not only for Americans, but for all people in the world. Oh, well, he went so far as to say that he would, uh, he favored uh, reducing the military power of the United States so that he wasn't tempted to be used to uh, harm other people elsewhere. It's not just for Americans. Yeah. That, that's pretty radical stuff. Well, we've strayed from that quite a bit. No, not only that, he wasn't accepted, uh, you know, even he made that speech. Right. But, you know, nobody picked it up, you know, right. <laughs> to speak of. And, and uh, of the, uh, at the same time, more or less, he was in favor of a 100% income tax beyond a certain level of income. In other words, with a fellow like uh, the Amazon guy, you know, uh, you know, he would his his annual income beyond I don't know a million dollars a year, he would confiscate, he would tax. <laughs> right. You yeah. Know? A, well, this is a profoundly American idea. You don't have to go to Germany, Marx, Russians, Chinese, right, etc., etc. And I think that has a lot to say for itself. Well, I, I do think that uh, hopefully in the future we're going to start saying there's something profoundly wrong with why one person has 
even a billion dollars. I mean, what is wrong? That's right. <laughs> right. What what is wrong with the world where I think it's eight or ten of of the people in the world uh, have over fifty percent of the world's wealth? I mean, that's a, there's really something profoundly wrong with that. But that's a tough sell. That's why tough. Why it's wrong? You know, on what basis? either religious or uh, philosophical or both, as to why it's profoundly uh, wrong. Right. You know, wh what about it is wrong? You know, because there are those that say, hey, listen, if you can make it legally, there's nothing wrong with it. If you made it illegally, uh, okay, we can sort of, you know, talk about that. But if you made your money legally, and you make a uh, billion dollars a year or a million dollars a year, who's to say that that's bad? You've got to bring up something more than just claiming that it's bad, but why it's bad, on what grounds? Right. American grounds. <laughs> yes. Is it bad? Did you see? That's where I, I think we need to be going well, I think part correct? of it, part of the answer is, uh, for me, biblically, that yes. uh, that uh, wealth destroys the person holding it. And uh, we've talked about that over and over again. And some, exactly right. somehow that has to become a, a more, there has to be a deeper and deeper awareness of just how much that kind of uh, hoarding destroys the person. And I can think of the parable of Jesus. He's got many on the rich rich people, but the one Very where, many, yes. where the guy says, oh, I made all this wealth. I'm, I got a comfortable life. I can sit back now and just enjoy life. And he said, and then, then you die. And then, then what? Then what's all your wealth for? I'm going to wrap up our session here. So this is one more <clears throat> item that we're putting down on the list that you created uh, the first, first or second session that we did about uh, several different ways to go about getting to a steady state economics or an ecological economic approach. And so we are going to delve into another topic next time, which I think is on our list. And it's a topic that Alec is actually an expert on. Public banking is a critical way to minimize the power of uh, banks that have now kind of taken control over economics. This topic is really important as we're facing a massive amount of debt. The question is going to become even greater than it always already has, and that is who is going to pay? The big banks have a ready-made answer. Borrow money from us. And uh, public banking is a way to say, well, why should governments borrow money they can create their own money just the way big banks create money, and then we don't have to pay off all this interest. So it's going to be uh, very important, and we'll look forward to delving into that next time. Until then, see you soon.